Jersey. Um, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> it's like right across the river. And um, uh, Dr. Bob, I was in, uh, I guess, no, it was at the church party at Fuddruckers. And I was telling one of Dr. Bob's jokes. I had uh, been forced by Becky to eat three or four desserts. And I was eating the third one when someone came up to me and said, um, I like your eating. And I said, well, I'm on the 30-day diet. So far, I've lost 15 days. And they said, they said, well, that sounds like something Dr. Bob would say. I said, do you know Dr. Bob? And they said, no, but you're always telling his jokes, and that sounds like one of his. And in fact, it is one of his. But I found out whose it really is, where they all come from. We were picking up his mother, Henrietta, in New York to bring her back. And Dr. Bob says, when you get back to Houston, you can come to Mark's Sunday school class. He's teaching on the Bible. And she says, I don't think he knows anything about it. And she looked at me and said that. And I said, well, I don't know everything, but I know a few things. She said, oh, yeah? Uh, where was Moses when the lights went out? I said, I don't know. She said, in the dark. <laughs> Welcome to our class, Mrs. Leone. She's right, I guess. Does anybody need a lesson? Mark Kraber and is that Danny's has got lessons back there that they can pass out. Today we do Matthew's miracles. Um, I gave a syllabus and I was just, I don't know, <clears throat> eating goofy candy when I wrote it, I guess, because I've decided it's not like when we're through here, we, we immediately have some other place to go. And so y'all are kind enough to come. So I've slowed things down a little bit in Matthew because I think we need to cover some things in some more details. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew's miracles, remembering the purpose of the book of Matthew. Matthew wrote his gospel to Jewish Christians to help them uh, in their conviction that, that Yeshua, Jesus, was Messiah. Messiah as prophet, priest, and king. And so Matthew writes in a way to confirm this to the Jews. Now let's look in that context of Matthew at the miracles that he's got. And what I've done for class is I've divided the miracles up into four... Mrs. Leone, you took a picture of me. We call her Mama Leone at the law firm. But uh, that's so... I bet it broke the camera. Um, there are four different types of miracles that I've divided it up into. Please understand, this is Lanier's classification. Okay? This isn't, I didn't pull this out of a commentary. I didn't pull this out of Matthew. I'm not even sure that this is useful. But I wrote the Sunday school lesson on an airplane from El Salvador on Friday, typing it into my computer, and it made more sense to me to put them into four different classifications just to ease our way through teaching them. So there's nothing profoundly theological about these classifications. In fact, my little sister Holly and my wife Becky uh, politely argued with me about the way I've chosen to classify them yesterday evening. But I did not change it. Um, <laughs> the first type of miracles that we will look at are the healing miracles, where Jesus heals those who are sick. The second type we will look at are those which are exorcisms, where Jesus casts out demons. The third type we will look at, I have chosen to call supernatural acts, even though it has been told to me by two women in my life that I could have said, these are, I don't even remember what they said, but they said if I did that, it'd start with an A and it would make nice sense and all, but that's okay. 
It's supernatural acts. And true, healings are supernatural acts and exorcisms are supernatural acts. But these are supernatural acts that we haven't covered so far. <clears throat> and number four, we'll look at the resurrections. There are plural, two resurrections that Matthew writes about. So, with that in mind, let's start with healings. Now, you get a Greek lesson here with healing. Your Greek lesson involves the word sozo. Say, sozo. Sozo. Yeah, and it actually almost has even a DZ in it. It's a, a sozo. Sozo is the Greek verb for heal. Okay? Sozo is the Greek verb for heal. If you've actually got, some of you people have these little Greek English Bibles that you bring to class. If you're one of those people, you're going to be looking and say, well, it doesn't look like sozo. It also takes the form of S-O-T-E-R. Soter. Because the Greek is a language that developed by the way it was spoken, not by the way it was written. So a T and a Z are often replaceable in Greek. So sozo and soto uh, can sound very similar to each other. And soter is a variation of that word. Now, this is an important Greek word for you. This is an important Greek lesson. Sozo means to heal, but it's also the Greek word for save. Okay? A healer is someone who can save your life. Jesus is the master physician. He's a master physician because he not only heals you and can save your life, but he heals your soul and can save your soul. And Jesus, as our Savior, is also our healer. In the Greek, the words are interchangeable. Okay? So, for example, Matthew 1.21 says, you, this is uh, God through the angel talking to, to Mary and Joseph. You're to give him, Jesus, the name Jesus because he will save Sozo, his people, from their sins. See, that's the use of that Greek word for saving. Jesus will save us from our sins. He will Sozo us from our sins. Now, look at another Matthew passage. Matthew 14.35 and 36. People brought all their sick to him, and all who touched him were healed. It's the same word. The Jesus who saves you from your sin is the same Jesus that was healing the sick. You with me? Now, why is this important? It's important because Matthew speaks of healing miracles by Jesus in a context that applies to all of us because all of us are sick and diseased by sin and need eternal healing or saving from Jesus. So all of these miracles that Matthew talks about, it's very fair for us to read them and to take them in a context that sees how Jesus not just heals the body, but heals the soul. Because Matthew runs this pun throughout all of these miracles. You with me? All right, with that, <clears throat> let's look at the miracles. First miracle we'll look at is in Matthew 8, the first four verses. There is a leper that Jesus has just come down from the Sermon on the Mount. And as he comes down, a man with leprosy comes up before Jesus. Now, leprosy was a skin disease. We're not sure it's only the leprosy we have today. We think it was much broader than that and included lots of different skin diseases. But a man with a skin disease was a man who was unclean. And a Jew would not touch him, and a Jew should not get within reaching distance of him. 
A man comes with leprosy. He kneels before Jesus. And the leper says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay? Jesus says, I am willing. And Jesus touches him. And he is clean. Now, Matthew, in this sense, applies this to us. There is a leprosy, there is a disease that all of us have. Matthew makes it clear right from the Sermon on the Mount. The proper response for any sinner to Jesus Christ who sees his leprosy, as, as uh, Damon was talking this morning about baggage, lots of people's baggage are their sins. And that's why Damon said you need to confess your sins. And God is faithful to forgive. I want to tell you, this leprosy miracle in itself is a snapshot photo of what we need to do with Jesus Christ. You come and you kneel before Him. Lord, if You are willing, You can make me clean. And we have the promise and assurance from Jesus, just as certainly as that leper was healed from his skin disease, that you will be healed from the diseases of your soul. I promise you, God cares a whole lot more about our souls than he does our skin. He's not just into the skin healing business, but this is our Savior. And so as he heals the skin, he saves the soul. You kneel before him and you get your miracle. Side note, <clears throat> Jesus says to the leper, see to it that you don't tell anyone what I just did. Isn't that interesting? It happens not just this time, it'll happen again in Matthew. Jesus telling them, see to it you don't go tell everybody. It says to me several things. First of all, Jesus was always very concerned that Jesus was not setting up an earthly kingdom. And the people wanted Jesus to do that. I mean, if you want to fight for someone, you want to fight for a king who has the ability to reach his hand out and heal you from your disease. That's the kind of king I want to go into battle with. If I'm going to be facing some guy with a sword, I'd just as soon have on my guy someone who can touch you and make you whole just in case the sword comes a little too close. Okay? There was always a serious risk because the people were trying to push Jesus into the people's perception that the Messiah was an earthly king. Jesus was not about that. Jesus healed this man not for show, not for accolades, and not for credentials on a resume. Jesus healed this man because Jesus had compassion upon him and the man needed healing. Jesus doesn't heal you and He doesn't heal me of our sin because He wants to show us off and show off His power. He does it because our sin weighs us down and will destroy our soul. And He has compassion and He cares about you. And that's why He does it. Next, a centurion comes up to Jesus. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier. And a centurion comes up to Jesus and says, I have a, sir, or a Roman officer. That's more important than a soldier. Excuse me. A centurion is over a hundred soldiers. That's why he's called a centurion. Century, a hundred. Okay? He's a Roman officer who's over a hundred soldiers. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have a servant who is sick. Would you come? I mean, would you heal my servant? Jesus says, yeah, I'll go with you and I'll heal your servant. The Roman, now this is not a Jew. 
the Roman centurion stops Jesus and says, Lord, I don't deserve you to come into my house under my roof. You just stay where you are. Say the word and my servant will be healed. See, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. This was a man who understood authority. And he understand that Jesus does not save you or me. Jesus does not heal anyone by his presence. Jesus heals and saves by his authority. It's that he has the authority to do it and the willingness. It's not some miracle of actually being there physically. We don't need Jesus to be physically present here to heal any of us today. We need the authority of Jesus Christ and his willingness to heal us. Jesus is amazed and says, I haven't seen anyone with this much faith among the Jews. And says, go, your servant's healed. And the servant was healed that very hour. Next, in Matthew 8, 14 through 17, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And, uh, which is interesting, by the way, that denotes that Peter was married. We don't often think of that. But you got a mother-in-law, statistically, typically. Not a lot of people just go out and look for those. <laughs> Not that my wife wouldn't have, Mom. She probably would have. But, and I would have too. Becky, your mom is there. But, you know, like Lewis wouldn't. No, I'm just joking. Um, Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Now, you know, typically you just give her a couple of Advil, right? Jesus, this isn't a huge miracle. This is an inconvenience. Jesus heals her. And then all of the people start bringing their sick in. And Jesus continues to heal them. Many others. And Peter says, I mean, Matthew says this is to confirm what Isaiah had prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 53 verse 4. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. And so that's what we have. And now, having done this, Jesus is en route somewhere and a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years sneaks up behind him. She doesn't call out. She doesn't cry out. She doesn't say, hey, stop, please, I need your help. She's just thinking, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. So she sneaks up. She touches the hem of his garment. Jesus turns around and confronts her. Now, this is a woman. Jesus says, by the way, your faith has healed you. This is a woman who is healed not because she has courage. She doesn't have enough courage to have a face-to-face -face with the Messiah. But she has enough faith. Enough faith to reach out. And if you reach out to Jesus, your reach will not go unanswered. He will stop and he will turn around. I, I, the, the image in my brain, I remember reading when I was, um, I guess it was 1981. I read an article in a little theological journal called Verdict. It was by a fellow named Robert W. Brinsmead out of Australia. I don't think I've read it since. 
but it has stuck in my brain like that because of how significant it was to me. This man said, the key to the grace, the healing power of Jesus is every human being can reach up as high as they can to the Messiah. Some feeling that they can reach higher than others. Some feeling they can just barely get their hand up at all. But he said, rest assured, while everyone reaches as high as they might, Jesus still has to reach down all the way. And he was right. This is a woman who has enough faith to reach out for Jesus, but not enough courage to ask Jesus for help. Jesus turns around and says, your faith has made you whole. And she's made whole. The hidden reach of a wounded soul. The hidden reach in the darkest closet of your life, in the deepest wound of your heart, if you reach out for Jesus, He heals you. And that's the promise of the story. Now, next, <clears throat> what I call two Gabby blind men. You will not see that as the title in your NIV study Bible. But I think it's pretty good. Matthew 9, 27 through 34. There are two blind fellows who are calling out for healing. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, Jesus goes into a house. Please understand, Jesus keeps right on walking. These blind guys, get it in your brain, the image here. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus goes into a house. Well, it's not like the blind guys can say, well, look at that, he just went into that house on us. Okay? I don't even think they had red-tipped canes back then. I don't know what they were using, but somehow they've got to figure out where Messiah Healer has gone. And where, where'd he go? Where'd he go? How come he's not answering us? That's why he went in the house. Where's the house? Well, it's right there in front of you. Okay, where? You know, they make their way into the house. They're persistent because they need the Lord. And there's no one else who can heal them. Their persistence pays off. Jesus says, do you believe I'm able to do this? They said, yes. Jesus says, okay, you're healed. He touches them. They have their vision. And Jesus says to them, see to it that no one knows about this. Okay, these were Gabby blind men. They run off and tell everybody. Um, now... I heard once one teacher say to me that he thought Jesus said this as kind of reverse psychology. Now, I don't think Jesus was into reverse psychology. Um, I mean, maybe he was, but I'm not seeing it that way. I think, again, this was Jesus saying to them, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in a position where I'm made an earthly king. I'm not doing this for show. This doesn't belong on my resume. I'm doing this right now because you two guys need it. And there's no one else that can heal you except me. And again, I draw the point with us. The Greek word for heal is the same Greek word for save. Jesus saves us because he is the only one that can. And you go anywhere else looking for it, and you don't have as much vision as these two blind men. God, may we see as well as the two blind men that the only hope we have in our lives is the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we persistently see that and seek Him out daily. 
in many ways those blind men had better vision than many of us who think we handle our life's crises better on our own. Next, what I call the heart of God and the law. On Matthew 12, in Matthew 12, verses 9 through 14, Jesus goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath. And there's a man with a shriveled hand. Now, the Pharisees see this as a chance to catch the Lord. Because they're not really into the perceiving the heart of God. They're not really into healing. They're not really into salvation. They're into self-righteousness. And they don't like what Jesus is doing. Have you noticed so far, Jesus goes to everybody. He helps the Roman centurion. He helps the mother-in-law, a woman. Women were notches down in most people's minds back then. He helps the blind men. He helps the outcast lepers. Now, this guy's helping everybody. He's not just in the good old boys club helping the good old boys. And the good old boys don't like that. So they think they've got a shot at catching Jesus because it's the Sabbath and Jesus seems to be a sap for anybody with some condition he can heal. So they get the man with the shriveled hand and they ask Jesus this question in their wisdom. Is it lawful, Jesus, to heal on the Sabbath? Because in the back of their brains, they're ready to quote with Jesus one of the big Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. On it, you shall not do any work. Barhorst, are you here today? John, you here? Doctors? Okay, you're not supposed to be doing work. And the Sabbath day. Ask Jesus if you want to be the doctor. Then you're not supposed to. So here's the man with the shriveled hand. What are you going to do? Jesus cuts right to the heart of it and just dissects them. He says, Ah, you'd pull a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath. Your sheep falls in a pit. You pull that out. He says, Don't you think God cares more for a human being than a sheep? Get your priorities straight. Understand the heart of the law. You've misinterpreted it. Jesus ought to know he wrote it. And so Jesus says, I understand God's law better than the specialist. Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand right there. And the Pharisees get really upset and they go out and start plotting how to kill Jesus. Clearly this guy is out of control. Now look at that for a minute. And think of it in terms of us and our salvation. Have you ever thought about how important it is to get rid of the Lord because He's starting to mess with what you want to do and how you want to do it? We need to understand God and we need to understand His heart and we need to embrace Him and seek Him out. And if there's something we don't understand, the answer is not get rid of the Lord. The answer is try to learn. Next, this is an ivory carving from 400 A.D. It's an ivory carving that's now in a, a museum in New Zealand. It's got Jesus touching the eyes of a blind man and healing him. There are blind men who see Jesus better than we do. And Matthew again tells the story of blind men who are calling out for Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the people around are trying to hush the blind men. Say, can't you see? He's busy. Y'all shut up. He's got an itinerary. He's on the go. And the blind men will not be silent. 
They continue to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. They're louder and louder as they do it. And Jesus stops and says, what do you want me to do? And they say, we want you to give us sight. Jesus is moved with compassion. He gives sight to the blind. What's our lesson here in our walk? Do not listen to those discouragers who tell you Jesus isn't in, interested in this. This is too small a problem for him. You got yourself into this mess. You fix it. You think Jesus is going to listen to you now? You've been sinning. You know, actually, it was your sin that got you into this mess to start with. You really think he's there for that? This has bothered you for 30 years. You think he's going to answer you today? Do not listen to those discouragers. You turn your heart to Jesus and you just cry out louder. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, as we remember from two weeks ago, is one of the phrases for the Messiah. Messiah, God's anointed, King, have mercy on us. And you cry out all the louder. Don't let discouragers ever get between you and the Lord because He is your only hope for sight and your only hope for healing and your only salvation in your heart. Okay, healings. Boom. We set them aside. Next, Matthew's miracles, exorcisms. Now, this is something that's kind of goofy to many of us because how many of you have seen the movie? The exorcist, you know, green pea soup, that thing. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have ever... Well, I won't ask that. Some of you might raise your hand and everybody around you will freak out. I was going to say, how many of you have ever seen an exorcism? Um, you know, it's an interesting thing, but the Bible talks about demon possession. Um, Damon last Sunday just told one of my all-time favorite jokes. The one about Satan came into the... Y'all remember that? Did anybody not hear that last Sunday? I mean, that's good enough to retell it if there are five of you. Okay. <laughs> Satan comes into the busy auditorium. Church service. Everybody turns around. They see Satan. Everybody leaves out every door. Just, and the whole place empties out. Except this one guy who's just sitting right down there where Ron Hickman is right now. <laughs> and Satan starts walking down the aisle. That guy just sort of sits there. Satan walks up to him. Says, boy, do you know who I am? And looks at him and says, yeah, I reckon I do. Says, boy, you see everybody ran out of here? Guy looks around and says, yeah, I reckon I do. Says, boy, don't you understand all the heartache and problems I can cause you if I put my attention on you? Yeah, I reckon I do. Says, well, why didn't you get up and run out of here? Why aren't you afraid like everybody else? Guy looked back and says, look, I've been married to your sister for 50 years. <laughs> It's one of my favorite jokes. <laughs> but while we joke about it, the Bible is serious. The demons are real. Satan is real. And he seeks to destroy. He seeks to rob. He seeks to take from you your happiness, your peace. I want to tell you something. Look at the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians. Satan wants to take all of them from you. He does not want you to have any of the fruit of the Spirit. And if he can do it from outside means, by deceiving you and tricking you and tempting you, he'll do it. If he can do it by getting into you, he will do it. 
Now, Satan doesn't indwell a Christian. Where the Holy Spirit is, you're not going to find Satan. I don't believe biblically he can. But I want to tell you, Satan still tries to rob you of your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your gentleness, your self-control. He doesn't want you to have any of that. So Jesus is dealing with people where Satan is indwelling some. And Matthew's interesting. Matthew draws a distinction between people who are sick and people who are demon-possessed. Some of the demon-possessed people have sick-type problems because of the possession. But Matthew draws the difference, as does Luke, who is a physician. The first two we want to look at, we're going back to Matthew 8, 28 through 34 again. Jesus is in an area called the Gadarenes, and these two men come out, and they're inhabited by demons, and the demons know who Jesus is. These men, at a time where a lot of people don't understand who Jesus is, come out and call Jesus the Son of God. And say, what are you doing? You're here to torment us before the time is right? And they tell Jesus, you know, please, if you're going to cast us out, at least let us go into those herd of swine over there. And Jesus says, go. And they leave, the, 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 the demons leave the men, they go into the, the pigs, and the pigs go running down the hillside and fall into the water. Now, realize, pigs are not kosher. And there's some, some delicious uh, uh, symbolism here. Jesus does not send the pigs into, I mean, send the demons into anything clean. It's okay for the demons to go into that which is unclean. So the, the demons go into the unclean, unkosher pigs. And then the town hears about it. And the town comes out and begs Jesus to leave. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ was able to clean up the worst of the worst in our community, I would beg Him to stay. In fact, I'd give Him a list of to-dos. I can name some of the people that'd be at the top. Sometimes it'll be me. Clean me up. But the town begs Jesus Messiah to leave. The lesson I draw from this, do not dislike Jesus for how He chooses to cleanse you or someone else. His work is for the best. Jesus is in the business of cleaning you up. Jesus is in the business of taking you little by little, day by day, and transforming you into His likeness. And sometimes we don't like the way He does it. And I've periodically thought about just asking Him to quit and leave for a while. We don't need to do that. His work is for the best. Even if we don't like how He goes about it, we need to be about the business of getting clean. And He is a cleaner, a healer, a saver. A mute man comes, and this man is mute because of a demon possession. And Jesus exercises the demon, and the man speaks. Then the Pharisees say, okay, we've got this figured out now. Jesus is one of Satan's lieutenants. See? So Jesus is, is a demon casting out demons. They're in cahoots. And Jesus, of course, points out the lunacy of the idea that any man could 
win by killing himself and casting out his stuff. But I love the illustration here that even the best deeds by even the Lord himself can be painted by people who have no spiritual insight as bad. Have you seen that in life? I bet Lewis sees it a ton in counseling. I bet many of us experience it in our life. I can't tell you how many times people who have no spiritual insight can take the best human deed or the best work of God and distort it into something that's evil and wicked. They're working for politicians. They're working for politicians. I don't know. Um, it, I think they're all over the place. Yes. But yes everywhere. And sometimes that's me if I'm not careful. I don't want to just judge them. Because I think all of us generally can fall under a lot of this ourselves. Let's be careful there. Next, there is a woman who is from Canaan. A Canaanite woman is one who is not a Jew. And her daughter is, is possessed by a demon. And she comes to Jesus and she begs Jesus to help. I love Jean Colomb's uh, painting of this. It's done in the 1480s. This is Jesus. Here's the woman, and off in the house you see her daughter. And the woman is on her knees, falling, beseeching Jesus. And Jesus turns his back to her. And you can even see the, the look on the faces of the apostles who look at her like, Tisk, tisk, you're not a Jew. A Gentile. So the Canaanite woman comes, and Jesus' response when she asks for his healing is to say to her, I was only sent... I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So the woman got up and went home and her daughter died. No. The woman persisted. The woman kneels at this point and begs Jesus. She says, you know, please. Jesus' response it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. So the woman turns around and leaves and goes home and her daughter dies. No. The woman again, again, she answers Jesus back. She, she engages him in debate, for lack of a better word. This is a woman. Most men wouldn't even take time to talk to a woman, much less a Canaanite woman. Jesus says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And she says, but Jesus, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I'm not asking for the whole meal. Please help my daughter. And at that point, as John Colomb draws the painting, Jesus turns around. This is at the bottom of the painting. Jesus turns around and says to the woman, you've got great faith. Go. Your daughter's healed. And the demon is cast out of the daughter. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us that Jesus was not going to heal that daughter. I think Jesus had a full awareness of that woman's persistence. And I think a lesson's being drawn there for all of us. There is nothing wrong with asking the Lord twice. There is nothing wrong with asking the Lord three times. And there is nothing wrong with respectful debate. 
in the end you acquiesce with His will, but you seek the Lord persistently. There's a boy in chapter 17 with demonic seizures. Seizures, this is great because the apostles can't heal him. Now, previously, Jesus has given the apostles authority over demons. We'll see that when we look at the discourses of Jesus in two weeks. But the apostles, they can't heal this boy. They bring the boy to Jesus. And the boy's got a demon. They say, we can't cast it out. And Jesus casts it out. And the apostles say, uh, in private, they don't do this in front of anybody. And I love the way Matthew writes it. Because Matthew's there, right? He's one of them. So he says, uh, so privately, you know, we kind of pulled him aside and said, how come we couldn't get this one done? What was the problem here? We were doing all of the things you said. Jesus says, this one only comes out by faith. Well, they had faith. Is he saying they didn't have enough? What he is saying is this. As holy and as faithful as mankind can be, you can take the apostles, the twelve holiest in our brains sometimes. You can take the holiest of the holiest and as faithful and good and as powerful as they can be. As wonderful as Lewis can be with counseling. As wonderful as Demond can be with preaching. You can take the holiest of the holiest. You can read the books by all of the Christian masters. But there are some things that will take the faith and the touch of Jesus Christ to heal. And if it's going to come through Lewis, or it's going to come through Demond, or it's going to come through a book, don't ever confuse it with Lewis, or Demond, or the book. Recognize it's the healing touch of Jesus. He's got the faith. His faith is reckoned to us as our righteousness as well, through our own faith. We'll get to that when we study Romans. Next, supernatural acts. Rembrandt, uh, Jesus is asleep in the boat. The storm is going on the Lake of Galilee. It's a wonderful painting. It's a wonderful painting because it shows the darkness of the storm. But somehow in the midst of the storm, there is light that shows the men looking up to it, crying out for help. And their help came from the sun, but it was the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. Are you ever worried that God is asleep in the storms of your life and just not paying attention? That's what the apostles were worried about. Jesus is sleeping. This is a bad storm. We're all going to die. He needs to wake up and pay attention. God clearly listens to him a lot more than the rest of us. And so they wake him up. And Jesus says, you know, what's, what's the problem here? Have faith. Jesus rebukes. That's the word Matthew uses rebukes the waves and the wind. Everything gets dirt calm. He says, okay, thanks. And I don't know if he went back to sleep or whatever, but the apostles get big eyes, deers in the headlights. Said, whoa, okay. We already knew he could heal all sorts of diseases. We already knew he had power over the demons. He even has control of the waves and the wind. And that's what we need to know. God's got control over the world, over the laws of nature, over your biology, over your spirit. He's got control over everything. He's the Lord of all. And you can put your faith in Him. And there is nothing you cannot trust Him with. And you never need to fear He's asleep. He feeds 5,000 and He feeds 4,000. And that's just the men count. That doesn't count the women and the children. And he does it with a few loaves of bread and a few fish in Matthew 14 and 15. 
This shows Jesus' compassion on the people, but it does something more than that. Remember Matthew's purpose is Jesus is more than, than, than just the Old Testament. He's Messiah. He is the answer. He's the fulfillment. He's more than Moses. Moses, when the people are hungry in the wilderness, calls for God to feed them. And God sends the manna. God sends the quail. God sends the bread. God sends the meat. Jesus says, I'm here. I will feed them. And this is Jesus being God to the people. And Matthew writes it in such a way using words that, that hearken back to the Greek translation of that Old Testament passage. And uh, we see it. Uh, one other side note here. Before Jesus feeds everybody, He gets thanks for the food and then eats it. That's where our tradition of praying before our meals comes from. Mount of Transfiguration, another Rembrandt painting. This is where Jesus leaves His apostles. Jesus has just healed this boy of demon possession. And that's these people down here who are dealing with the boy as Rembrandt did it. Jesus goes up on a mountain and Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And there's this bright apparition and Jesus has this private conference with them. Jesus comes down. The apostles say, oh, this was big. Let us build monuments to this. And Jesus says, nah, don't worry about it. Now, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah the Old Testament priest of all priests, Moses, the Old Testament prophet of all prophets, Elijah, and they come and they beseech Jesus. If you notice, uh, Rembrandt doesn't miss the point. He shows Jesus as higher than Moses and Elijah because he was. The two great icons, I mean, the three great icons that the Messiah is to be, priest, Moses was the biggest in the Old Testament. Prophet, Elijah was the biggest in the Old Testament. King David was the biggest in the Old Testament. Jesus is all three plus. He is Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. Now, the point is, we don't know what they said. Because the point is not what they were saying, but who was there. Matthew's point is, this is Jesus higher up than anyone you'll read about in the Old Testament. Next, and last of these supernatural acts, the fruitless fig tree. Jesus is hungry. He's walking down the road. sees a fig tree. Doesn't have any fruit. Um, Jesus curses it. <coughs> Excuse me. He, uh, the fig tree withers and dies. Jesus says, may you never bear fruit again. And then Jesus tells His apostles who are amazed because they've never seen a fig tree shrivel up right before their eyes. He says, oh, you got faith, you'll do far more than this. And the nice thing about the faith is, instead of shriveling up the fruit trees, through our faith, we see life come. And it is far more than death. Resurrections leads us to the last area. Matthew 9, 18 through 26, the daughter of a ruler is dead. Jesus goes to the house. The flute players are there. The mourners are there. Jesus says, y'all step outside. She's not dead. She's just asleep. They start scorning Jesus. Did Jesus lie? No. Because she wasn't dead in the sense of the extinct. Many Jews at the time didn't even believe there was eternal life. And Jesus is saying, she's not dead. Her soul exists. Her body is dormant. And Jesus calls her soul back into her body. <clears throat> Death is not extinction for any of us. Death is just waiting for resurrection. And it will either come in this body or it will come in a body to come. Jesus' own resurrection is the other resurrection. We'll look at that in more detail um, three weeks from now.
points for home. Number one, Jesus is a miracle worker. He is a healer. He is a savior. Anybody in here ever had Jesus work a miracle in your life? Anybody who's saved needs to raise their hand. Biggest miracle he could ever do. If you come to Jesus with your needs, he will meet your needs. Intercede with Jesus for others. Did you notice how many people came to Jesus and got healing for other people? Moms for kids, soldiers for servants. You come to Jesus and intercede with others. No job is too big for the Lord. He overcomes everything. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that You do work miracles and that You work them in our lives and in our hearts. It is my fervent prayer, Lord, that everybody in here will right now think of the area in their life where they need Your divine touch. Perhaps more so than any other area. And that right now they will cry out to You in this prayer, Lord, please touch me and heal me. And Lord, that they will stay persistent with You until You bring them to a place of healing or peace. Thank You for Your promise to do so. In Jesus we pray. Amen.